Well, good morning, First Free Church. So good to be with you. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. It's so good to have Alec back on the stage leading us in worship. He and his wife, Rachel, are celebrating the birth of their daughter, Faye Biggs. So we can clap for that and just celebrate that with the Biggs family. Exciting for them. She was born on July 9th. Mom and baby are doing really well, and it's great to have Alec back with us this morning. Hey, before we dive into the message this morning, I wanted to let you know about a couple of things that, that are going on coming up here at our church. Happy Labor Day weekend. By the way, welcome to all who are joining online and maybe traveling. It's hard to believe that it's Labor Day, isn't it? It seems like the summer has just flown by. That means we're getting ready here to step into fall. There's a couple of events and opportunities that are coming up I just wanted to take a moment to let you know about. September 24th, we've got our next baptism celebration. It's going to be in the activity center, 5.30 to 7.30. It's going to be a great time of dinner and dessert and fellowship. And if you're interested in being baptized, you can learn more at efree.org slash baptism. We also have our rooted small groups that are getting ready to launch here in just about a week. We've got four awesome groups. There's still some spots that are available. You can go to efree.org slash rooted to learn more. It's an amazing small group experience that'll really help you get connected to other believers. And then finally, next week, we're gonna be launching into our new Created to Connect series, which is all about God's design for gender and intimacy. We wanted to give you a preview of that series, so go ahead and watch this on the screen. series. We're excited to have Adam back next week from sabbatical to lead us through. Be sure to be here. Invite your friends, invite your family. We're excited to dive into that series together next week. So for today, we're coming to the conclusion of our Verse That Changed Everything series. How many of you have really enjoyed this series? I know I have. Man, Adam put together, yeah, just a great group of speakers that have come, shared part of their life story. I'd love to share a little bit of mine with you as well. The verse that changed everything for me is Philippians 3.8, which says this. I want to read it right here at the beginning. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. We're going to dive into that passage in depth here in a few minutes. We'll look at the surrounding verses as well. But I'd like to set up today's message with part of my story because God used this verse in particular to speak to me at a key turning point in my life. It was a time when God taught me to lean only on him. Before I share my story, I've got a, a quick question. By show of hands, how many of you have ever used crutches before? Anyone? Actually see some here, here in the back of the room. Now, crutches are helpful when you're going through an injury, but of course when we're healthy, 
You don't want to go through life leaning on crutches. But the truth is, metaphorically speaking, all of us have crutches that we lean on. A crutch can just be a substitute for God, something that we trust in, something that we depend on. And sometimes God works in our stories to graciously take those away so that we can learn to lean and depend fully on him. So back to my story. I grew up in an amazing Christian home. My parents are here this morning. I'm so thankful for them. I'm thankful for the legacy of faith that they passed on to us as kids. I remember knowing about God and even believing the gospel from a really young age, but it took me a much longer journey to, to fully apply those truths to my life. During my teenage years, I had many competing identities, my family, being a basketball player, trying to get good grades, trying to win the acceptance of my friends, going to church, being a musician, being a worship leader. It was kind of this confusing, chaotic mess of trying to figure out who, who I really was. I pretended to have everything together in all of these different realms, but underneath all of these identities, I felt really far from God. I was struggling with hidden and, and secret sin and I was deeply ashamed of this. I totally based my self-worth on what other people thought of me. And God was kind of part of my life, but he definitely wasn't central. He was more like a genie that I used to kind of bless and prop up and support all these other identities that I pursued. I didn't really realize this until I went to college and God started to graciously but painfully take each of these identities away. I went to Miami of Ohio to study journalism and all of a sudden I went from being relatively well known at a small Christian school here in town, Westminster, to being completely anonymous in the state that was far away from home in a freshman class of 3,500. It was a lonely and disorienting experience and I desperately tried to find and establish my old identities. But in every single realm, in basketball and music and academics and even in friendships, I just felt like another face in the crowd. I felt like nothing was working. Just as the loneliness and confusion was settling in, my girlfriend from high school, we'd been dating for about a year and a half. She was attending a different school in, in Ohio. She ended our relationship in, in kind of an abrupt way. I can look back now and put all of these struggles into perspective, but at the time, I was crushed and really confused. What was God doing? It felt like he was taking away all the key parts of who I was. Well, in those first weeks on campus, these guys from this college ministry called the Navigators kept showing up and knocking on my door. One of them was named Justin Gravett. He was the NAV's campus director, and he had given me his cell phone number and said, hey, if you need anything while you're here, you can call me at any time. So soon after the breakup, when I was at my lowest of lows, I texted him, hey, are you free to talk? I needed someone just to process and to listen. We met later that night. He asked how I was doing. I shared everything that was going on. He listened for a long time. He asked some really good questions. And then he actually led me to Philippians 3. And he talked about the greatness of knowing Jesus. That totally wasn't where I was expecting the conversation to go. Then he asked me a simple but life-changing question. He said, Andrew, what if what you're going through right now is an opportunity to get to know Jesus better? I hadn't even considered that perspective, but what he said planted a seed. 
So fast forward a few months later, I was still desperately trying to find a new identity on campus, and there was this big Greek culture at Miami of Ohio, so I decided that I would rush a fraternity. I wasn't really seeking the crazy party lifestyle, but I was seeking a badge of belonging and identity. And so I only rushed with this one frat. It was one of the most respected ones on campus. If you got into this fraternity at Miami of Ohio, you were definitely part of the like in crowd. And that's really what I wanted. I desperately wanted to get in, so I became good friends with some of the older Christian guys in this frat. I went to all the recruitment, uh, all the recruitment events, kind of tried to put on my best face, and the guys in the frat told me they definitely thought that I would make it in. Then came the big night when the frats voted, and you found out if you were accepted. Now, this was back in 2006, and in the dorm rooms at that time, there were still these white corded telephones. You guys remember those when we used to have those on our walls? We had cell phones at that point, so I don't know why they still had the old telephones, but they really only rang for two reasons. If you were in big trouble from the administration, or if you were getting a phone call from the fraternities or sororities to let you know if you made it in. So I remember sitting in my dorm room, just eagerly waiting for that phone call. Finally, the phone rang. I picked it up, I held my breath. Hey, Andrew. We voted and we're really sorry, but the numbers didn't fall your way. I couldn't believe it. I, I was just crushed. I, I didn't make it in. I hung up the phone and at that exact moment, one of, the, one of my friends who was rushing that same fraternity burst into the room and said, Andrew, you just got the call. That's so great. We're gonna be frat brothers. It was like that moment in the movies when someone comes in and just says the absolute worst thing possible at the wrong moment totally felt like that. I fought back the tears as I told him that I didn't get in. I couldn't face the embarrassment of telling all the other guys on my floor. I took it really personally, so I left my dorm room and I just went for a walk. I felt like I had to get out of there. It was a freezing cold January night, but I was so angry and upset, I didn't really care. I walked around campus for a while, not really sure where I would go, and I ended up on the edge of campus at this church that I attended on Sunday mornings. The doors were locked, so I just sat outside in, in the church field under this big tree, freezing cold, and I just was really honest with God. I kind of let, let God have it. I said, I don't want to follow you anymore, God. If this is what it means that you just say no to everything and that you just take things away from me, then I'm done. I am done with following you. I vividly remember saying that to God. I sat there for a long time. I don't remember if or what I heard back from God at that specific moment. I think maybe I just needed silence there for a while. But I do remember that in the days and weeks that followed, God spoke to me really powerfully. And Justin's question from a few months earlier started to come back to me. Andrew, what if what you're going through right now is an opportunity to get to know Jesus better? I spent a lot of time the next few months just alone in my dorm room. My roommate made it into another frat that had a crazy party culture, and so after long nights of initiation and partying, he mostly just slept at the frat house. And so I was alone in, in my dorm room for, for quite a bit. In that empty space, I started to really spend time with God. I read the Bible in a really deep way for the first time in my life. I, I prayed, I listened to worship music. I was just able to spend time being with Jesus and developing a friendship with him. My heart wasn't always 
excited about that, but I felt like it was what God was drawing me into. During that season, I read a book about King David by Chuck Swindoll. It was a gift from my mom, and I'm so thankful that she gave it to me because, because God really used this book to speak to me. There's a chapter that I'll never forget called Every Crutch Removed. He talked about how all of us have these things that define us, our relationships, our status, even our hobbies, and that these can be really great gifts from God, but if we're not careful, they can also take the place of God in our hearts. Sometimes God has to lead us through seasons where he takes those things away. Here's how Swindoll describes the process in his own words. All of us are leaners, not learners with an R, but leaners, L-E-A-N-E-R-S. We prefer not to stand alone, facing the icy blast of life without someone or something to lean on to support us. And these self-styled crutches become our securities. To some, the crutch is finances, to others it's employment, a certain position at work. Many lean on their reputation or children or friends or some unique ability. Whatever it is, they are crutches, human, ego-satisfying, and emotionally supportive crutches. Then God moves in, begins an internal reconstruction process that rips away everything but himself. The process is painful, but the result is beautiful. And man, that was true in my life. As an 18-year-old college student, the process was really painful. But I don't think I can remember a season of life where I grew more spiritually in a short period of time. God removed all of the other competing identities, and I was left with the one that mattered the most, my relationship with him. In this season, Philippians 3, 8, and 9 became a life verse for me. Let me read it to you again in the NIV, which was the version where I first learned it. It says, what is more? I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So this morning, we're gonna look at Philippians 3, one through nine. And if you haven't already, you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles now. As we go through this passage, we're gonna see two false crutches that we are all tempted to lean on and one sure foundation that we can always trust in. That's where we're headed this morning, two false crutches and our one sure foundation. Let me pray for us and let's dive into this passage together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our stories. Thank you so much for the way that you worked in my story all those years ago, I'm so grateful for that. I, I don't know that I would be here today without the way that you intervened. And God, we welcome you into this place. We welcome you to speak to our stories, speak through your words, and speak through the Holy Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's dive into Philippians 3.1 together. I love, love this passage. I'm so excited to study it with you. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Here in verse one, Paul kind of sets up this amazing section of scripture. This is like the, uh, the prologue, the, the introduction to all that he's about to say. He reminds them to rejoice in the Lord, which is a familiar theme in Philippians, and he says that this will safeguard their faith. That word safeguard means to make sure and reliable. 
It's the same word that's used in Hebrews 6, 18 and 19, which says we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong, there's that word, safeguard. It's a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. I love that phrase, strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. That's what all of us are longing for, isn't it? Something to depend on in the storms of life, something that we know that we can lean on. Paul wants to give that to the Philippians here, but first, he needs to warn them of several false anchors, or as we'll refer to them today, false crutches. He wants to show them what they can't lean on before showing them what they can. So let's continue in verse two and see what Paul has for us today. It says, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. Now this verse feels like a really big tone shift. He was just telling them to rejoice in the Lord and now he's kind of using all this intense language and rhetoric and saying, watch out. What's going on here? And there was this group of Jews who, abused, who opposed Paul's message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ by teaching that you had to be circumcised to be saved. They basically believed that by keeping the Jewish law, you could become right with God. Paul shifts his tone and his rhetoric here because he knows there's a lot at stake. Salvation by grace is the very heart of the gospel in and through what Jesus did on the cross. And these false teachers are opposing this. So Paul uses strong language to alert his readers to be careful. In the original language, he actually uses the word look out three times here in this one verse. So you could translate it, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who are mutilating the flesh. Watch out, be careful, take caution. Paul was really concerned that they might be led away from the gospel. And just like the Philippians, we need to be vigilant and watch out for anything that could lead us astray from the gospel and anything that we might be tempted to lean on. Let's look at how Paul continues in verse three. He says, we who worship by the spirit of God are the ones who are, are truly circumcised. We, lie, we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us and we put no confidence in human effort. That last line of verse three is so important. We put no confidence in human effort. Instead, we rely on what Jesus has done for us. What an amazing summary of the message of the gospel. I think in these first couple of verses here, we see the first crutch that we're gonna see in this passage, the first false crutch. We can't lean on our own righteousness. That's what Paul wants us to see. We, we can't depend on our own effort, our own ability to keep the rules to make us right before God. Think about it for a minute. Paul's Jewish opponents thought that they could earn salvation by keeping the law and obeying the rules. And while we probably don't struggle with thinking we can earn salvation through the Old Testament Jewish law, don't we face a similar temptation in our own hearts? Aren't there times where we can try to earn salvation with our own set of rules? Maybe you base your standing with God on your record of obedience. Maybe there's a sin struggle in your life and you believe that you're right with God as long as you don't struggle with that particular sin. Now we should certainly resist sin, especially the ones that are specific to, to us and, and how we tend to struggle. But we need to trust in God and his forgiveness, not ourselves and our strength and our record of obedience to be made right before him. Or think about it this way, maybe there's a quote rule that you live your life by that gives you a false sense 
of salvation and being right with God and others. Maybe it's a rule that's kind of imposed by our culture, like I have to be a perfect mom or I have to be a perfect dad for my kids. Man, for us as parents, that pressure can be so heavy and it can become a rule that we live our whole lives by. Maybe if you're a student, the rule for you is I have to get perfect grades to be accepted by my parents and my teachers or I have to be an amazing athlete so that I'll be respected by my friends. If you're in the corporate world, maybe you feel like you have to get that promotion in order to be right. You have to save up for the perfect retirement to achieve happiness. Or, in speaking here from personal experience, I have to be the perfect pastor. Man, that's really a temptation for those of us who are in ministry. Now, of course, we should seek to honor God in all these areas of our lives, our families, our careers, our callings, all the things that he's given us. But if we aren't careful, we can trust our performance in these realms to give us a false sense of salvation. These can shift from being important parts of our identity to our ultimate identity. And when that happens, they become an idol in our hearts and a crutch that we are leaning on. It's limiting us from walking into all that God has for us. So let me ask you, is there a particular, quote, rule that you tend to live your life by to earn salvation, either from others or from God? We can't depend on our ability to, to keep these rules. Eventually we get tired and, and worn down and we'll fall short and we'll fail. But God invites us into the freedom of trusting him, not relying on our own strength, but what Christ has done. And there's so much amazing freedom in that. We can lay down our rules because of what Jesus has done and live instead in his grace. So that's the first false crutch that we see in this passage, trusting our own righteousness, trusting our own ability. As we continue in this, the next part of this passage, we'll see that Paul knows from personal experience how tempting it is to trust in his own abilities. Look at what he says in verses four through six. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reasons for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. And here Paul's just gonna list all, all of his own credentials. He says, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Man, here in this section, Paul just lists out his credentials. And there's a lot here that culturally is difficult for us to connect with, but here's kind of the bottom line. One commentator puts it like this. There were very few people in Paul's day who could claim such quality external credentials as Paul lists in verses four through six. By all the measures that counted, he would have been at the very pinnacle of respect accorded to young Jewish leaders. It would have been like working at one of the best companies in St. Louis, just instant identity, instant respect, instant influence. Paul had all of this and God calls him to give it up. Look at what he says in verse seven. I once thought these things were valuable, but I now consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. This is an amazing statement. Paul has this incredible list all these things that define who he was culturally, spiritually. He was top of, of the top. Everyone looked up to him and respected him. But now he considers all of that worthless. 
Paul shows us the second false crutch that we see here in this passage. We can't lean on our personal resume. Think with me for a moment about this idea of a, a personal resume. I'm not necessarily talking about what you would submit to, to get a job, though that may be part of it. I'm talking about a list of things that defines who you are, your, your family, your background, where you're from, what you've done, your, your accomplishments. What's the list of things that define you? Many of the things on, on this list are, are really good thing. They're often gifts from God or callings that he's placed on our lives things that he's given us to care for or to steward. And when Christ is our foundation, we can honor God in every single one of these areas. But we do need to be careful. Our culture encourages us to define ourselves by our wealth and our accomplishments. And our sinful hearts can gravitate towards making the things on this list more important than our relationship with the Lord. So think again about your, quote, resume. Is there something on this list that maybe you value too highly? I think as people, we're oftentimes not very good at assigning value to things. I came across a few examples of this from the world of eBay, where you can buy and sell almost anything. Someone actually paid $59 for a box of 10 Twinkies. This was back when Hostess announced that they were shutting some of their factories and Twinkie panic ensued, and everyone started posting their leftovers to eBay. And someone paid $59 for it. Another one that I came across, someone paid over $1,000 for a cornflake that was shaped like the state of Illinois. Come on. It's part of a traveling museum now. I would never go see that. Um, the weirdest one that I found was someone who paid $1,025 for Justin Timberlake's leftover French toast. This is not a joke. There was a DJ who saw JT having breakfast swiped his leftovers before the server could get them, posted it to eBay, and a super fan was like, yeah, I'll pay $1,000 for that. That's just crazy. Something that would literally just get moldy and be thrown away, garbage. So we're not always the best at valuing things. And it's one thing to make a silly purchase or buy something on eBay, but it's a, another thing entirely to misvalue something by the way that we live our lives, by what we give our time and our money too. This is a really important question. So we need to, to think again, is there something that we need to adjust and value? Paul wants us to see that if any of the things on our list take the place of Christ in our hearts, then they're not gain, but they're loss. And so maybe for you, there's a value adjustment that, that needs to be made. Take some time and think about that this week. Maybe even list out all of your priorities, all the things that define you right now in this season of life. Try to get a sense of which of these is most important? Which of these is too important to me right now? Which of these is most important from God's point of view? That'd be a great exercise and way to apply this passage. Well, in the next verses here, Paul's gonna show us what's most valuable of all. Instead of the false crutches of our own righteousness or our own resume, we see the place that we can truly place our trust. So let's look together at verse eight. Paul says, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. 
This is such a powerful verse. Paul isn't merely talking about making minor adjustments to what we value. He's describing a total realignment of everything that's important to us. He wants Jesus to become our first priority, our most important pursuit, and our greatest treasure. Paul even says that for the sake of Christ, he's discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. Now, this is a really strong term. It, it would have leapt off the page at the original readers. It refers to refuge, waste, that which is thrown away and discarded. And without getting too graphic here, it can also refer to that which is flushed down the toilet. Doesn't this seem like a little bit of an overstatement? When we think about the question that Paul's answering, not at all. Paul is answering like the question, the fundamental question, what is most important? for us to pursue what values most as we live our lives. So he leaves no doubt about it. Pursuing Christ, a relationship with him, that's most valuable. Nothing else even comes close. Now within that framework of being totally and completely devoted to Christ, it is important to note that Paul doesn't say that everything is worthless or that everything is garbage. There's many good gifts that God gives to us and entrusts to us that do have great value. But here's the key. In comparison to knowing Christ, everything else is loss. And if any of those things get in the way of knowing Christ, Paul wants us to discard them, and to throw them away. Think for a moment about all that Paul has lost to follow Jesus. Think about all that he suffered. He totally lost his former identity he was placed in prison multiple times. He was beaten up and persecuted. We could just go on and on and on about all that Paul has suffered. And yet he knows that he's gained that which is most important, a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he wouldn't trade this for anything in the world. Jesus himself made it clear that we would need to give things up and suffer to be his disciple. He said this in Matthew 16, 24. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your way for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? So we are called to give up everything to follow Jesus. But here's the great paradox of following Jesus. For in giving up everything, we gain everything. In losing our lives, we save them. And in giving up ourself and our selfish desires and all that we wanna live for, we gain a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of the infinite value here of knowing Christ Jesus. And this word knowing isn't how we typically think of it, just like head knowledge. It's a really rich word that means to know by experience. It's not just knowing facts about something, some, something, sorry, excuse me. It's not just knowing about facts. I wanna get this right because it's an important point. It's about knowing someone deeply in your heart. It's about a relationship, the, the knowledge of friendship, the knowledge of walking with someone over the course of life. And note again how personal this is for Paul. He calls Jesus my Lord. He's personally acquainted with him. There's this close connection. I love what Paul says in the last part of verse eight and the first part of verse nine. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. Or as it says in a lot of translations, and be found in him. 
think all of us are searching to find what our hearts really long for. We're looking for a treasure, for something to give our lives to. Here, Paul says that we are found. It's as if, it's as if instead of us finding the treasure, the treasure finds us. We're found in Jesus. This means that we develop such a deep sense of connection and closeness that our whole identity is found in him. We become one with him. All of us have this desire to find ourselves. How beautiful is it that Jesus Christ is the one who finds us? Paul finishes verse nine by returning to the great theme of the gospel, that we're saved by faith in Christ alone. He says, I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. That is such good news. Now, faith is a familiar word, but it can be tricky to define. I came across a story that, that I think helps. There was a missionary named John Padden. He was working on translating the Bible into a new language for a group of people who didn't have access to God's word. And when he came across the word faith, he was struggling to know how to translate it because there wasn't a one-to-one equivalent that would translate into that cultural context. As he was thinking about this problem and wrestling with it, one of the locals came into his office very quickly in great distress. He was needing aid, and he said in the native language, please, may I come and lean heavily upon you. And in that instant, John Patton knew what phrase he was gonna use to translate the word faith. Please, may I come and lean heavily upon you. The author who conveys the story puts it like this. He says, Faith is leaning heavily upon Christ. Not labor, but cessation of labor. Not doing, but ceasing to do. Simply leaning the whole weight of our needs upon him and finding in him acceptance before the presence of God and a righteousness which we could never, which could never be ours by our own works. I really love that line. And faith is leaning heavily upon Christ. It's trusting him. It's depending on him. And this is really the heart of the gospel message. And even if we've heard it before, we need to hear it again, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He paid for our penalty on the cross to make us right with God. And that by putting our faith in him, we can receive his righteousness. We don't have to work for it anymore. We don't have to labor for it. We can cease our our exhaustion and our, our ceaseless efforts and just rest in Jesus. And then as we do that, that Jesus leads us on this journey of of becoming his disciple. Wherever we are at in that journey, we can always lean heavily upon Christ. And that's the final principle that we see in this passage. It's our one true foundation in a world of all these false crutches. We can always depend on Jesus. When we're struggling with sin, we can depend on his grace and his forgiveness. When we aren't sure where to go, we can depend on his guidance. When we're afraid, we can depend on him to be with us. When we're lonely, we can depend on his friendship. And when we're lost, we can depend on him to always find us. This is what God taught me all those years ago as a freshman in college. And when I look back, I see it as one of the key turning points in my life. It was painful in that moment to be rejected by the fraternity, but I'm so glad that God closed that door. When he takes something away, he often has something better to give us. And that was so true in my story. 
God brought some amazing friends to come alongside me, a bunch of older guys from the Navigators Ministry who discipled me, took me under their wing. For me as the firstborn in my family, it meant so much to me to have spiritual older brothers who befriended me and helped me along in my journey. God used the NAVS ministry to help me develop a passion for worship ministry and for discipleship. Eventually, God used that to lead me to a church in Indianapolis where I'd meet my wife, Amber, and where I'd feel a sense of calling to go into ministry. So I don't think I'd be standing here where I am today had God not intervened and directed me into a big turning point in life. God took away all of the crutches that I was leaning on, but in doing so, he freed me to run into the plan that he had for me. So let me ask you one final question. Is there a crutch that you are leaning on this morning? Maybe it's your own self-righteousness. Maybe it's your ability to, to keep a set of rules or one particular rule that has become really big for your heart. Maybe it's something on your resume, that list that defines you, that you've elevated to a place of ultimate value. Whatever it is, God wants to set you free so that you can walk with him. I felt like God gave me this image this morning of someone who is totally healthy, walking through life with golden crutches. It doesn't matter if they're made of gold. It doesn't matter if they're covered with jewels and diamonds. They're still crutches, and they're gonna limit us from moving into all that God has for us. If that's you, let them go. Let them fall to the floor. Drop them. Lean only on Jesus. He's got something so much better for you than walking through life with just a golden crutch. As we transition into a time of communion here, and Alec is gonna lead us in, in communion this morning, this is a great opportunity to confess those crutches to the Lord. Let's be honest with him. Let's bring those before him. And let's not forget the last point of this passage, that we can always depend on Jesus. No matter what that false crutch is, no matter how many times we've gone back to it, no matter how often we're ashamed of it, no matter how we feel like we've just turned away from God and relied on that thing that's not him again and again and again, we can always, always depend on his grace to bring us back. It's who our Lord is. So let's pray together. Let's get ready to come to the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, we are, we're so grateful, Lord, for the way that you find us, the way that you know us, God. You know our stories. You know all the things that we lean on. You know our hearts and, and where they're broken, God. You know the pieces of our life that are, are beautiful and, and amazing and, and put together right now. But in all of that, God, we often, we get so confused and, and we mess it up, Lord. We we turn away from making you the main thing and we, we lean on all these other things. Would you speak to our hearts about that this morning? Reveal that to us and God, lead us in a better way. For your name, for your glory, Holy Spirit, would you lead us so that we can follow you in freedom and follow you in the joy of, of knowing you, Lord, being in close communion with you and being found in you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.